Thanks, John. You did a fine job. Open now to Mark chapter 13 as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 13. And children, um, if you're preschool through what, I think third grade, head back towards the white picket fence area and we have children's time for you there. Just again, be careful around the shed. There are some bees over there. <clears throat> I want to welcome our viewers on uh, Facebook. Glad you could join us. And um, I know that you might feel a little detached, but you are a part of us and we are with you and we welcome you and uh, just want to continue to know that you are, are part of this church and we pray for you and pray with you and we are together in this in these times. Mark chapter 13. As I was thinking about what to title this message, it kind of dawned on me, I think just this morning or maybe later last night, but I think I would give this the title of Disaster on the Horizon. <laughs> Disaster on the Horizon. I did not expect to be doing this this year, but I am teaching a, uh, a history class. I was once thinking I might be a history teacher, so this is kind of a fun thing for me, but I'm teaching a United States history class. I've got about six or seven students, and they're all kind of homeschooled, but uh, also coming in for a class, and I get to, get to oversee that, and it's been a lot of fun. But I love history. I'm fascinated with history. I'm intrigued by the, by the past and the experiences that people have gone through. And one of the things that you know when you, when you study history is that there have been a lot of points throughout history at which people thought that the end of the world had come. It just looked very clear that this must, in fact, be the end because of just how bad conditions were. And I will just run through a few examples. And maybe you can recall learning about some of these events. But think about the time of the Black Death or the plague that swept through Europe in 1350. It was such a devastating disease that it killed between 30 and 60% of the entire population of Europe. Can you even comprehend what that would have been like? It took 150 years for the population of Europe to recover after that disease came through. Staggering. Would have thought the world must be ending if you had lived at a time like that. Entire towns, entire villages completely decimated, wiped out. But then also, as I'm teaching uh, American history, we're early on in the story right now, and there's that point at which the, the uh, Native American population confronts the diseases brought from Europe in the 16th century, and in some places up to 90% of the population die from disease in certain areas. To have lived at that time, to be among those people, must have seemed the world is over. This is the end. What, what more can there be? But not just disease, there are also natural disasters. One of the natural disasters of history that has intrigued me has been the Lisbon earthquake of 1755. So just 10 years before the American Revolution begins, there was a disaster in, Earth, in Lisbon. Lisbon was the, one of the leading cities of the world at the time. And on an early Sunday morning, as they were just getting ready to go to church, an earthquake struck, demolishing nearly all of the buildings in the entire city. And as people were, were digging out from the rubble 
And, and so many had already lost their lives. That was just the beginning of the destruction because the epicenter of this earthquake was uh, a miles out to sea and it created a tsunami that swept ashore and then wiped away all the debris and all those who had might have survived the earthquake were now decimated by the tsunami. And if that weren't enough, all the, the rubble of the buildings that hadn't fallen and been washed away caught fire and the city burned for days on end. That would have felt like the end of the world, I'm sure, to have been in the midst of that. The last example I will give you, and then I will move on, but this one is also an intriguing event from history. The year was 1883, and the location was the Sundra Strait between the islands of Java and Sumatra in Indonesia, when the island of Krakatoa exploded. Now, usually you think about volcanoes as creating islands. This was a volcano that destroyed an island. Two-thirds of the island was immediately obliterated, turned to dust. It was so loud that they heard the blast like a cannon 2,000 miles away. It was so loud that they say it was the loudest event in history, four times louder than the loudest thermonuclear blast. It created so much ash in the atmosphere that the climate changed for years afterwards and that there was a haze, a cloud in the sky across the entire globe for years. It changed sea levels in the English Channel. This was an event that would have made you feel like the world must be over. Something so devastating must have happened. So there have been a lot of points in history in which it seemed like the world must have come to an end. But here now, Jesus is going to describe an event just like that, or worse. In fact, in verse 19 of chapter 13, he says this. He says, For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. Jesus is going to describe something here that is absolutely devastating. Disaster on the horizon. So I want us to look beginning here at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. It says, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Father, I pray as we study these words of Jesus, as we study this prediction of disaster, that our hearts will turn to you, that our hearts will listen and receive from you. Guide us, I pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. The temple. The temple was one of the greatest structures of the world at that time. People thought it was rivaling any of the greatest structures of the city of Rome. It was built in such a way that it was polished and it was shiny. It would glow in the sunshine and it was a magnificent thing to see. It was so, so huge. Some of the stones were like the size of school buses on this thing. It was not going to go anywhere. And, 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 and the, the Jewish people were extremely proud of this temple of theirs, of its appearance 
and of its strength. And the disciples, as you know, have been expecting that Jesus is going to establish his throne. He's going to be king. He's probably going to reign right from this building. This is going to be his palace. And when they get to sit at his right hand and his left hand, like they were arguing about, they think they're going to be in this temple probably and ruling the world. But Jesus has something else in mind. And now it's time for him to explain it. He says, this temple, this thing that you're so impressed with, it's going to be gone. And this must have seemed unimaginable. How on earth could that happen? This kind of a building, this kind of a place. Well, now the disciples are intrigued. What does Jesus mean? Look at verses three and four. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The disciples want to know more. They want to know when this is going to happen. They want to know what are the indicators that we're, we're going to see something happen like this. So Jesus takes them up on the Mount of Olives, which is a mountain just outside the city of Jerusalem. And he says, you know, basically look out on the city, look at the walls, look at the towers, look at the temple, look at this impressive fortress. And he says, it's not going to be pleasant, but there's some important things I need to tell you about this city. There will be trouble, there will be tribulation, and there will be destruction. Look now at verses five through eight. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines there, but these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus says there is going to be big, big trouble. There are going to be deceptions. There are going to be people claiming to be uh, leaders that you should not follow. There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. There are going to be earthquakes and, and diseases and famines and disasters. And all of this, he says, is just the beginning. The beginning of birth pains. There in verse eight, the beginning of birth pains. What is he talking about? birth pains. Well, something is coming. Something is going to be born. Something is going to be brought into the world like a baby is born. And there's going to be pain and there's going to be turmoil and there's going to be difficulty in the midst of it. What is it? Well, what is going to be birthed is the rule and the reign of God on earth. And it as, as, as he rules in heaven, he will rule on earth in the hearts of those who believe and in the church, the body of Christ. Something incredible is being born and there will be pain at the time of this birth. So now in verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, stand firm through this time of birth pain. Stand firm. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard, he says, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in the synagogues. And you'll stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. 
And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, don't be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus says to them, be on your guard and stand firm through the trials and tribulations that are to come. Now, I think this is a fairly good summary of the book of Acts. If you read ahead in the book, you find out the apostles are persecuted. They are dragged before uh, rulers and, and beaten in the synagogues. And they are forced to witness and to testify. And God gives them strength and boldness in their voices. They stand firm through the trial and the temptation. They take to the world the good news, as he says they must do. He says in verse 10, the gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations. The disciples, the apostles do this as they proclaim the message to the world. But it is difficult. They suffer. There is tribulation. But he says, stand firm. But now in verses 14 to 23, I want you to look because after standing firm, he now gives a different instruction. He says there's going to come a point at which you're going to have to stop standing and you're going to have to start running. <laughs> a point at which it's time to flee. Look at verse 14. Now he says, but when, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee. Flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. Pray for those days. There will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those he chose, he shortened the days. And then it, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. So if up to this point they are to stand firm, now he's basically saying, get ready to run when the time comes. There's going to be a point at which you're going to have to flee. Don't pack your bag. Don't go back for your coat. Don't do anything. Just get out. And what is the sign for this fleeing that Jesus says will come? Well, he uses this weird phrase in verse 14. He says, you will see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Let the reader understand. What is that about? Well, it's a bit confusing, but we have to know some history at this point. This concept of the abomination of desolation is deep in Israel's history. It was something first predicted in the, in the book of Daniel. If you go back into his prophecy, Daniel predicted a terrible act of, 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 uh, of 
evil would occur in Jerusalem in the temple as as um, uh, a warning, as a sign. And sure enough, in the second century B.C., the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes uh, fulfills this prophet of Dan- prophecy of Daniel as he comes into Israel, as he comes into Jerusalem, as he comes into the temple, and this Greek ruler sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple, which is an absolute desecration of God's temple. This became known as the abomination of desolation and is seen as what Daniel had said would happen. It was a terrible point in Israel's history. And now Jesus is basically saying, you know what, this is going to happen again. It's going to happen in your lifetime that this abomination of desolation will occur and will be standing where it ought not to be. What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about what in fact happens about 35 years or so after he issues this prophecy. During the lifetime of the apostles, the Jewish revolt began in 66 AD. They were tired of the Roman rule and began to rebel against the Roman rulers. And so uh, the the emperor sent Vespasian, the most um, ruthless general of the Roman army, against the Jewish people. And 69 AD was a year unlike any other year in terms of the the disaster and the turmoil politically and everything else. There was civil war in Rome. Nero, the emperor, died. Vespasian, who was marching towards uh, destroying Jerusalem, suddenly saw his opportunity to become the next emperor. So he, he leaves the battle to his son Titus to finish up. Vespasian returns to Rome. Titus continues the battle against the Jews. And he is as brutal or more brutal than his father was. And Josephus is a Jewish historian who tells us of the events that occurred. He, he was Jewish and he was on the Jewish side until Titus became, uh, became clear that Titus was going to win this battle. So Josephus kind of pulled a Benedict Arnold, switched sides and, and, and sided with the Romans instead. But he left us a recording of the events that occurred at that time. He tells us more than a million people were in Jerusalem for Passover. That these people should have fled. They should have realized what the Romans were going to do. But instead they dug in. They stayed. They didn't run away. And as the Romans circled Jerusalem, they set up siege works. They built a wall. They made sure that nobody in the city could escape. Nobody could get out for food. Everybody inside would have to surrender or die. There was division within the ranks. There was conflict among the Jewish leaders. Some were saying that they would deliver the Jewish people, that they would be like a Messiah, that they would throw Rome off their backs. But they all failed and they began to infight. And the siege continued. It became brutal. Uh, Many, many, many died in fighting. Many more died of starvation. There were stories of them eating their own young and of the disease and of the conflict and of the devastation. There was just nothing like it that anyone had ever known. Eventually, the, the Romans breached the walls. They burned the temple. 
they sacrificed on the altar to Caesar, abomination of desolation. Those who survived were crucified or taken as gladiators to fight in the arenas of Rome. And it was the worst devastation that the people had ever experienced. What Jesus said would happen came true, just as he said it would. And I'm sure it was with with heavy heart that he told the disciples of what was to come. But they needed to know. They needed to hear for good reason. And there are reasons we need to know and need to hear this as well. What should we do with this? What should we do with this word of warning, of destruction and devastation on the horizon? I think two things that I want us to focus on here as we wrap this up. First of all, we also should prepare for tribulations. We should prepare for tribulations, whether they be big or small. There are hardships and struggles that we will all face, whether it's in our personal lives or whether it's on a national or global scale. We should not be surprised when hard times come. And we should not assume that there are necessarily worse than what people have experienced before. But we need to know that hard times may be upon us. But what does Romans 12, verse 12 tell us? Paul writes there, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation and be constant in prayer. I love that three-part exhortation to rejoice in hope, to be patient in tribulation, to be constant in prayer. This is the, the attitude that Christ calls us to, regardless of the, t- of the tribulations that we face. And to see these tribulations that we face, whether they be big or small, whether they be personal or national or global, to see these as birth pains, as birth pains, because something is coming, something will be born in us and among us, And that something is the kingly reign of Jesus Christ, that he be born in us, that he be born among us, and that he rule and reign through our lives and in our world. So we prepare for tribulation, not because that's just the the end that we, we will expect, but because it is leading to something great, something good, something blessed. We prepare for tribulation. What else should we do with this? Well, I think the thing that matters most, what Jesus wants us to hear now is that we make sure that Jesus is king of our hearts today. Are you sure that Jesus is king of your heart today? Jesus does not want his people hanging their hopes on earthly powers. This is very clear. He doesn't want them looking at the temple or at the impressiveness of this city and saying, this is your future. This is what's going to make you great. He says, no, this is all going to be rubble in just a matter of years. Don't hang your hopes on the earthly powers. Hang your hopes on the sovereign reign and rule of Jesus Christ. It's just going to be a matter of years before the church starts moving out 
in the book of Acts. But many, many of the early Christians stayed in Jerusalem. It was just the brave few, the the people like Paul, who actually went far and wide. It wasn't until Jerusalem was destroyed that most of the Christians, especially the ones in Jerusalem, finally got the idea, oh, we are to take this to the world. And our power and our might is not in this city, but it's in God and God alone. I want to end with Romans 8, verses 35 through 39, because this is where our hope rests. When Jesus is king in your heart, when he rules your life, this becomes true for you. This becomes the word you stand on, no matter what the tribulation may be. It says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we are facing various tribulations in our lives, some of them personal, some of them we experience together as a nation or even as a world. But Father, we don't want to look at these tribulations as being just setbacks, but Father, as birth pains of something good that you are bringing. Lord, I pray that Christ's reign will be born in us and among us and through us. Lord, you have a purpose and a plan and a direction to this history that we are all a part of. And we thank you for what you have promised to do. Give us the strength to stand firm, to hold fast in faith and in hope, and to be constant in prayer. Thank you for your spirit who lifts us and sustains us. In his holy name we pray. Amen. After we uh, sing the closing song and I uh, announce a benediction, we'd, I'd like to have some gather to pray for Marlene Honeywell. Marlene is going to be having surgery later this week, and she's asked that we would gather and pray for her. So I'll invite Marlene to come up at the close of the service. <laughs>